Grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 21. And if you don't have a Bible, grab a pew Bible and turn to page 1075 if you have one of the old holy Bibles that are in your pews. We do have a few new ones, and I actually have no idea what page number John 21 would be. But um, if you don't have a Bible, we invite you to make this pew Bible your Bible. Take it with you today. No one will stop you on the way out. We want you to have it, we want you to use it, we want you to read it, and we're glad that you are worshiping with us today. I do have some things I want to bring to your attention. This Wednesday is the annual Rotary Club Nelson's Chicken Dinner Fundraiser. It's facilitated at the junior high. It's a drive through chicken dinner. Um, a lot of Rotary members uh, are a part of our church, and they're probably selling tickets. I will have tickets available in the back. The reason I'm advertising for this fundraiser is because all of the money that's raised is turned around and given back to the food pantries in this community, including our food pantry. Rotary has been very generous with our food pantry. They also give us all of the leftover food, and we're able to give that away the next day to people who are in need. So if you don't have your tickets, we invite you to buy one, two, ten, whatever it may be. It's a great cause. This Thursday is If Table. They're in the Family Life Center. Women of all ages are invited to come on out at 7 o'clock. It is going to be a great time. I've never actually been to an If Table for longer than about 90 seconds, but it looks like it's a blast, and the women who attend say they are blessed by it. So if you're here and you're a woman and you're maybe not as connected as you'd like to be, maybe you feel like on the fellowship uh, side of things you're really not getting everything you want, this would be a great way to reach out to meet some awesome women who are young, some awesome women that are not so young, and to have a great time. That's this Thursday. The Intentional Church Conference is right around the corner on Saturday, April 23rd in Decatur. I still have spots available, and the cost has already been paid. So uh, if you'd like to go see me or Karen Rice, and we'll get you signed up. And then our next mobile food pantry. We are so blessed by the Eastern Illinois Food Bank. They bring a semi-load of food to our community once a month, to DeWitt County once a month. And we have hosted two mobile food pantries. We've given all the food away. We're going to do it again on Saturday, April 30. And I need your help. Now, I know some of you showed up either in October or in February, and we didn't have anything for you to do because we asked for 30 volunteers, and we had like 50 people that showed up, which is awesome. I still need you to come on out because there's going to be that day that we're not going to have the 50. We're going to be under 30. So Saturday, April 30, come on out. We would love to get you plugged in. We concluded a series last week. It was a five-week series looking at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. The name of the series was Crosswords, and the book that we used as a companion was Cries from the Cross by Erwin Lutzer. And Adam preached last week. He did an awesome job. I listened to that Tuesday morning in the office. I'm thankful for Adam. Um, he's in the back here. Will you show your appreciation to him? He's really grown as a preacher. I know that might sound condescending. I don't mean that in a condescending way. I mean it that he really, God is really using him in a great way, and I'm thankful for his hard work last week. So what were the cries of Jesus on the cross? Well, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus said, I am thirsty. Jesus quoted Psalm 22 and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said, here is your son. He said that to, uh, to his mother Mary. He said, here is your mother. He said that to the apostle John. On Easter, we looked at Jesus saying, it is finished. Well, what's that mean, it is finished? And then finally, Jesus said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And the temptation, when you read the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and, and you ponder these things, is to be discouraged. 
and to say that's disappointing, that's disheartening. How could they take the Son of God and nail him to a tree? How could they take Jesus Christ, perfect in every way, fully God, fully man, and kill him? And so we consider this and we could be discouraged. But the cool thing about Good Friday is it didn't stay Good Friday. There was silent Saturday and then there was Victory Sunday. And the motto of Victory Sunday, four words, he is risen indeed. And I want to say a word about Easter Sunday services at our church, uh, specifically second service. Um, Samuel Green and his team planned what was probably my favorite service that I've been a part of two weeks ago. I, I absolutely loved Resurrection Sunday, Victory Sunday. So Samuel, I don't know where you're at. Uh, where, where is he? Thank you very much. Um, give him a hand as well. A lot of work went into that service. Great, great day. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with Easter week? What do we do with Good Friday, Silent Saturday, Victory Sunday, Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again. What's next? Well, that's what the next three weeks is going to look at. We're going to look at what Matthew has to say and what John has to say and what Luke has to say about what took place following the resurrection and the ascension. And we're going to look at three snapshots, we're going to look at three narratives, and, and um, I'm starting today in John. John was the disciple that Jesus loved. John was closer to Jesus than Matthew was. You know, Mark and Luke weren't actually walking with Jesus. They, they wrote their Gospels as a result of encounters they had with Peter and Paul and, and, and other disciples. But John, he really knew Jesus. I mean, he was there from the very beginning. He was part of that inner triangle, Peter, James, and John. And John gives us a unique picture of what happened following the resurrection. I'm calling it the aftermath, and we're going to look at a lot of scripture. So let's read most of John 21 together, beginning with verse 1, the word of the Lord, John 21. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Several things here. Why did they go fishing? Well, because that's what they did before they followed Jesus. They were fishermen. And I don't mean they were fishermen like you and me jumping a boat and, and we go out and try to catch a, a couple of largemouth bass near the power plant. Not that kind of fishing. I'm talking nets. I'm talking commercial fishermen. I'm talking if I catch fish, I eat this week. And if I don't catch fish, I don't eat this week. It was their livelihood. And Peter and James and John and Thomas and Nathaniel, they gave it all up to follow Jesus. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you what? fishers of men and so they dropped their nets and they followed jesus and it was a pretty incredible three years they saw a lot of miracles they experienced a lot of ministry they heard jesus say some radical almost crazy like things like i'm a, you tear down this temple and i'm gonna rebuild it in three days and maybe they scratched their head and they said rebuild the temple in three days it took decades to build that temple what's he talking about my best guess with uh these guys is that they really thought Jesus was going to restore the kingdom now. That the Romans weren't going to be the big dog anymore. That Israel was going to kind of be restored to the greatness that it had experienced when David was king. And when Solomon was king. And when everyone was looking around saying, I don't want to mess with Israel. And yet that's not how it unfolded. Jesus 
died on a cross. He's crucified just like any other criminal. And yeah, he rose again. That was really cool. We showed up at the tomb and he rose again. He wasn't dead anymore, but it wasn't what we thought it was going to be. And so for a while they were hiding. And after a while they kind of looked at each other and said, what do we do next? So they went back to fishing. They grabbed their nets. They pushed the boat away from the shore. And they went fishing all night long. Commercial fishermen fished in the evening. Fishing was better at night. Now, if you've ever went fishing at any time in your life, I want you to raise your hand right now. Any fishermen here? Lots of us have gone fishing. If you've ever went fishing any time in your life and not caught anything, I want you to raise your hand right now. Most of us have experienced that as well. If you've ever went fishing and you didn't catch anything, but the person in the boat with you was catching fish, raise your hand right now. That's like hell on earth, isn't it? That's awful. That's terrible. And these guys were up all night long and they were tired and they're not catching any fish. And that's kind of their world. Verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. So he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? You know, it's bad enough they didn't catch any fish. Now some guy they don't recognize is taunting them from the shore? What's up with that? And so they mumble back, no, we haven't caught anything. Suggestion now, verse 6, Jesus says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. It's at this point that if you had a big rock, you might throw the rock at the person on the shore. You've been out all night long. You've been all over the, the sea. There's no fish to be caught. We're not catching any fish. And if I'm those guys in that boat, I'm shrugging them off and I'm heading in to get a nap. I'm not doing it. But the text says that they listened. When they did throw their nets on the right side of the boat, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. How cool would that be? To think that the guy on the, 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 the shore busting your chops, wasn't busting your chops. It was Jesus. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, fish 153 but even with so many, the net was not torn. Now, I want to pause right there and give you something that's not part of this sermon. I'll have people come to me and say, I can't believe the Bible. It's just a fable. I can't believe the Bible. It's not reliable. I can't believe the Bible. Some guy made it up a long time ago. Do you realize the detail John goes to, to let you know that this isn't made up? That this is something he actually experienced. Why is he telling us he caught 153 fish? Is he bragging? No. He's letting you know I was there and I remember counting them out. 150, 151, 152, 153. Wow, that's really cool. So don't let anybody ever tell you, you can't trust the Bible. John was there. He's giving us an eyewitness account. Jesus said to them, I love this, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord and Jesus came 
and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so what's the point of this? Here's the point of this. It's easy to take your eye off the ball. It's easy to take your eye off the ball. It's Masters weekend. They're playing golf in Georgia. Um, I'm not a golf fan. I'm not a golfer. But let's just pretend for the morning that I had like the Ryan Sossman golf pants on and I've got the club and I'm ready to go and those of you that know him will get that and you're ready to golf and and I just I close my eyes and I've got my big old fat driver and I I just swing as hard as I possibly can what's going to happen probably nothing right I'm probably not going to hit anything but if I did hit that golf ball where's it going to go who knows right it might slice it might hook it might hit you in the head because that's not how you play golf You've got to really be intentional. You've got to really keep your eye on the ball, keep your head down, and make sure that when you swing back, and again, I'm not a golfer, so I'm kind of just making this up, but the whole idea is that, you know, you want to keep your eye on the ball. What about baseball? Can we talk about baseball for just a moment? Okay, if there's a great pitcher out there, and I'm ready to swing, if I close my eyes and swing as hard as I can, I'm not going to hit that baseball. I've got to keep my eyes on that ball and just try to make contact. You've got to keep your eye on the ball. Is Jesus trying to teach them about golf? Or baseball? He's not. He's talking to them about the rest of their lives. And when they made the decision to jump in the boat and head out on the lake, they had taken their eye off the ball. They went back to what life was before Jesus. They went back to fishing. Now, there's nothing wrong with fishing. I may go fishing this week, quite honestly. But instead of preaching Jesus... Instead of doing ministry, they were fishing. You might even say it like this. They were off mission. They were off mission. And so I want you to do something right now. You can do this by yourself. Or if you're sitting next to people that you like, you can do it with them. But I want you to just discuss or or ponder yourself for just a moment. What's it look like when a Christian goes off mission? What's it look like when a church goes off mission? What's it look like when a parachurch organization, maybe a camp, a college, a ministry of some sort, goes off a mission? What's that look like? Ready, get set, go. You get 90 seconds. Do it. Talk amongst yourselves. Go ahead. Off mission. What's that look like? It's okay. You can talk in church. I promise. What's it look like when a Christian goes off mission? What's it look like when a church goes off mission? What's it look like when a parachurch ministry goes off mission? I see a hand back here. Jeff Bowling? What's that? You you lose focus, okay. Off mission, what's that look like? What's some of the collateral damage of going off mission? What's that look like? Off mission. Anybody? Don't be afraid. Sin can come into play. You find yourself behaving maybe in ways you shouldn't. What else can happen when we go off mission? You know, hope. Yeah. What else? 
you get distracted. I came up with six things. I could have come up with 66 things. Let's put these up on the screen. I think one of the things that happens is we're worried about the I instead of the we, or more importantly, the he. And so what do I like? What do I want? What's most important to me? We can find ourselves majoring in the minors. We find ourselves worried about things that really don't matter. We find ourselves focused on things that aren't big picture Christian things. We find ourselves less passionate than we were a year ago about the faith. Less passionate than we were six months ago about the faith. Less passionate than we were 30 days ago about the faith. I think complacency is a huge problem, a huge uh, issue. And if you ever want a picture of what complacency looks like, look at the life of King David. King David was as good as it gets in the Old Testament. He's a man after God's own heart. He's killing lions. He's killing bears. He's slaying nine-foot giants. He's become the king. People love him, and I mean they love him. He's got women throwing himself at him, and he's praising God. He's writing songs. He's writing uh, the, the Psalms, the book of Psalms. Most of those are written by David. And you look at that, and you're like, that's as good as it gets. You know, except for the fact that he became an adulterer and a deceiver and a murderer. That's not good. That doesn't sound like a man after God's own heart. How does that happen? I think the key verse in the story of David, from really good to really bad, is 1 Samuel 11.1. 1. It says, in the springtime, when the kings went off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. And that sounds innocent. I mean, hadn't he earned the right to not go to war? He's the big deal. He's the king. He can do what he wants to. But instead of being the fierce warrior that God had made him to be, he finds himself taking a walk late at night on his roof. And he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Women don't take baths with clothes on. You, you can fill in the blanks here. And the next thing you know, a man after God's own heart. Adultery, deception, and murder. And if it can happen to David, it can happen to me, and it can happen to you. That's what happens sometimes when Christians go off mission, when churches go off mission, when organizations go off mission. Fear drives us. Worry drives us. We forget what it's really all about. One of my favorite places to visit, I haven't been there in several years, and I'm really jealous because our students this year, our high school students, are going to go there as part of their summer mission trip. But I love to visit Havad Yad. Anybody ever been to Havad Yad? I love going, and I, it's Harvard, and I'm just trying to do the whole New England accent thing, which obviously isn't very good. But um, I love to go there because Harvard is considered the greatest educational institution in our country. Some people would say the greatest educational institution in the world, but do you realize that Harvard wasn't founded to be an Ivy League school. There was no Ivy League when it was founded. Harvard was founded to be a preacher training institute. The first several presidents of Harvard were preachers. And today, that's not happening at Harvard. They're off mission. Now, is it still a great school? Absolutely. Are they still educating the, the brightest in the world? Absolutely. 
but they're off mission. Anybody ever heard of Moore's Missionary School? I've been to Moore's Missionary School. It's nestled between um, New Hampshire and Vermont, just right on the border there. It is beautiful. I love to visit Moore's Missionary School, but it's not known as Moore's Missionary School. Today it's known as Dartmouth College. Maybe the most liberal school in the Northeast. Some people call it the Berkeley of New England. And again, great school, get a great degree. You'd be world-renowned with a degree from Dartmouth, but you're probably not going to go there and study how to be a missionary. You're probably going to have to go someplace like Lincoln Christian University. When Christians go off mission, it's dangerous. When churches go off mission, it's dangerous. When parachurch organizations go off mission, it is dangerous and can have tragic consequences. And Peter and James and John and Nathaniel and Thomas and two other disciples who are unnamed, they're off mission at this point. They went back to what they understood before. They've gone fishing. Well, our our, uh, encounter continues with verse 15. Let's read on. It says, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now, what are the these? Some people think that Jesus was talking about all the other disciples. I don't think so. I think he's talking about the fish. I think he's talking about the 153 fish, but more than that, the life of a fisherman. Do you truly love me more than these? He's saying, Peter, what's more important? Is it fishing or is it ministry? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, you probably haven't studied Greek, which is fine because most people have not, but if you had studied Greek and you cranked out your Greek New Testament, you would see that there's kind of a play on words going on here that the English language doesn't really do justice to. The first two times that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, he's using the Greek word agape. It's the highest form of love. It's unconditional love. It's as good as it gets. And Jesus is saying to Peter, do you agape me? Do you unconditionally love me? And Peter is answering yes, but he's saying not yes, I agape you, but he's saying yes, I phileo you, which is another Greek word that's used for love. And it's more of kind of the brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And it's kind of like the fist bump kind of love. It's kind of like you're, you're my homie kind of love, but you're probably not coming to my house and staying and all of that. We watch the Cubs together. Their four-in-one life is great. But beyond that, that's probably all it's going to be, okay? And so Jesus is saying agape, and Peter's saying phileo. And then the third time, Jesus says, do you even phileo me? And so is that what Jesus is trying to communicate here? Unconditional love compared to brotherly love? Maybe. Is Jesus trying to ask Peter the same question three times because Peter denied Jesus three times? Maybe. But here's the takeaway that I think we need to grab a hold of is that number one, Jesus loves Peter, forgives him, and is in the process of restoring him. But secondly, some questions are easy to answer, but wow, are they difficult to live out. Some questions are easy to answer, but they are difficult to live out. So Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Well, of course I love you. You're Jesus. You fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish, and 
That time you were walking on water and I tried to walk on water and I started to drown. You played Mr. Lifeguard and you saved me. Of course I love you. And Jesus didn't say, okay. Jesus said, what? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Put your love into practice. Friends, if we love Jesus, if you love Jesus, if I love Jesus, we will be passionate about Jesus' passions. And i got to confess to you this morning, a lot of times I'm passionate about Greg's passions. And Jesus' passions can fade. Jesus' passions can take a back seat. And so one more time, you enjoyed it so much the first time, I'm going to ask you to confer or to meditate, ponder on this question, what are the passions of Jesus? What really turned Jesus on? What really lit his fire? What made him say, wow, that's awesome? Talk about that for just a minute. 90 seconds. Ready, get set, go. Passions of Jesus. You don't have to whisper, really. You can talk out loud if you want to. It's okay. It's okay. Five, four, three, two, one. I think that's 90 seconds. Okay. What are the passions of Jesus? Come on, help me out here. Passions of Jesus. Somebody. The lost people. Children. What else? To teach. What else? Make disciples? Is that what you said? Or his disciples? His disciples. Good answer. Also make disciples. What else? I came up with six. I think I only came up with five last time. But I got six here this time. Put them up on the screen for me because I don't have my iPad in front of me. Help me out. The poor and the oppressed. Jesus had a passion for the poor and the oppressed. Do you have a passion for the poor and the oppressed? Or do you look and say, man, I'm glad I'm not like that. Man, I'm glad that's not my world. If we love Jesus, we'll love his passions. Jesus had a passion for money and material possessions. Now, that's phrased kind of not correctly because he didn't want you to have money and material possessions necessarily. He wanted you to have a healthy control over money and material possessions. Jesus taught more parables on money and material possessions than anything else. 16 of his 38 parables are on money and material possessions. And its point was, money will get the best of you. Material possessions will get the best of you if you have the lust for more. If you have the desire for more. And so he had a passion that you and me and us and our church, that, that we not just always be driving more and more and more. Can I confess to you today, money's gotten the best of me at times. Material possessions have gotten the best of me at times. Where I found myself saying, if I just had, and I fill in the blank, then I'd really be happy. If I just had this, life would really be good. Jesus had a passion for the kingdom of heaven. It's raining outside. It's a nasty day. Here's a great Sunday afternoon exercise. Pick a gospel, any gospel. Mark is the shortest. Matthew is the longest. Luke is probably written the most beautifully. And John is probably the most practical. Just grab a gospel, read the chapters of the gospel and underline the number of times that Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven and you will find passion. Jesus got excited when talking and teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had a passion that we have the heart of a servant. 
couple weeks ago on Palm Sunday, three weeks ago, we, we studied Jesus washing his disciples' feet, which was a disgusting thing to do. And he did it to teach them that it's all about the servant's heart. It's all about service. It's all about serving others. Jesus had a passion about making disciples. And next week, we're cranking into Matthew chapter 28, and that's what we're going to study. What's it mean to make disciples? How do we make disciples? How do we make disciples and not simply pew sitters? How do we make disciples and not simply club members? What's it look like to make disciples? And then finally, and most importantly, Jesus was passionate about love. 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 You read what John writes about Jesus' last week, and that love just creeps in, that, that call to love, that command to love, to love one another, to love as I have loved you, to love as the Father has loved you. It's over, and it's over, and it's over again. This week, we had the Arimans Fellowship at Lane, and it was awesome. They gave us brats and great sermon, good time, but one of the songs that, that was led by uh, Jamie and Rory, which was great, brought me back to my little Galilee days when I was like a third grader and a fourth grader and a fifth grader. And we'd be sitting around the campfire and we'd sing this song. The gospel in a word is theology, right? The gospel in a word is service. The gospel in a word is classes. And what is it? The gospel in a word is love. Jesus was passionate about love. We must love one another. Let's read on. Let's conclude this account. Verse 18. Jesus went on to tell Peter, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. That sounds like Good Friday to me. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Follow me me. Follow me. The very first thing that Jesus said to Peter was, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And now, post-resurrection, Jesus once again says, follow me. So what's the call of Jesus? What can we take from this? The call of Jesus is simply this, follow me. And so I ask you this morning, are you following Jesus? We throw that term Christ follower, Jesus follower. I don't really like the term Christian. Everybody uses the term Christian. But I love that term Christ follower or Jesus follower. How do you answer the call of Jesus to follow me? Bottom line for you this morning, if we love Jesus, we will fulfill the mission. We won't be off mission. We will be passionate about fulfilling the mission. And so what's the mission? The mission of our church, mission statement of the church, to glorify God, to win the lost, and to teach the saved. Jesus could have went a couple different directions with Peter. He had every right to just give it to him. Boom, you really let me down. But he loved him. He spoiled him with one more miracle. He cooked him breakfast. He forgave him. He restored him. And he got ready to send him. And next week and then on the 24th, 
we're going to look at some of those sending words, make disciples and be my witnesses. What's the call of Jesus? Follow me. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And God, it's my prayer that that will always be the cry of our hearts. That whatever else is happening, whatever else is rolling through our minds and we're thinking about and maybe we're worried about or we're concerned about or we're bothered about, that we'll never lose sight of what's most important. We're going to follow Jesus. To be Christ's followers. To be Jesus' followers. Help us to never lose that. We love you so much. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, the team's going to sing a couple songs that's going to lead us into our time of communion.